is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read it in just a moment, but if you have your Bibles open, uh, that would be great to 1 Samuel 16. Um, while you're turning there, I'll just mention two. Mike and Jenny Guy are here this morning. You'll want to say goodbye to them and wish them well. They leave on Tuesday for uh, Papua New Guinea. Did you shake your head now? Is that right? I, you're right. Tuesday, right? Yes. Okay, good. Sorry. Um, so, anyway, wish them well as they go. Now, I know that it is summer, and I know that this is a very astute congregation, but for just a minute, I'm going to take you back to kindergarten. We're going to, I want to uh, remind you of uh, my kindergarten teaching mother's, one of her favorite books, a book that she shared to, loved to share with her children. It was called Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? Remember this book? You read it, maybe. You've probably read it at some point in time to somebody. It was written by Eric Carle in 1967. He and his co-author, or his illustrator actually, uh, Bill Martin, wrote a number of books. I think their most well-known book is probably The Very Hungry Caterpillar. The Very Lonely Firefly is my favorite. But this is a book that um, uh, teachers love to share for a number of reasons. It's simple, repetitive, uh, and it, it, it helps children learn to read by sharing uh, or associating words with pictures. So here's how it goes. Brown bear, brown... I'll show you the pictures. I have the words memorized, which will amaze you. I know. Okay. <laughs> brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? I see a red bird looking at me. Red bird, red bird, what do you see? I see a yellow duck looking at me. Yellow duck, yellow duck, what do you see? I see a blue horse looking at me. Here's a plot twist you would not see coming, okay? I'm just warning you about it. Blue horse, blue horse, what do you see? I see a green frog looking at me. Now the story continues, right? As uh, you can imagine, we see a purple cat and a white dog and a black sheep and a goldfish. And then finally it finishes with um, uh, depending on the, illust- uh, the edition you have, uh, it might be a teacher or a class or students or a mother. This is not an exciting book, but it's a colorful book. It's an interesting book. It's a useful book. And I showed you these pictures because this morning I want to ask you a question, a very simple question. Congregation, congregation, what do you see? I'm prompted to ask you that question because seeing is our topic for today. Last week our topic was hearing. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 15, the emphasis is the word repeated is voice, voice, voice. What do you hear? This morning the key word in the uh, 1 Samuel 16 is the word see. And more specifically, 1 Samuel 16 teaches us that God sees what you don't see. Or more positively, 1 Samuel 16 is a call in the Bible for us to see what God sees. Now remember, the book of 1 Samuel, or the book of the 1st and 2nd Samuel together, uh, give this, this message that tells us that God shepherds his people through his anointed king. That's what Samuel is about. Based on that summary, though, the book asks its readers, will you recognize the king when he comes? If God shepherds his people through his anointed king, will you recognize him when he comes? The reason I ask that question is because he might not look like what you expect or think the king is supposed to look like. Will you recognize him? Well, it all depends on what you see. 
I should admit here that even before we get very far into this chapter, some of the wisdom that is here has already been incorporated into our traditions. In fact, it's embedded in some of our Proverbs. All that glitters is not gold. Don't judge a book by its cover. Beauty is only skin deep. Clothes do not make the man. Looks can be deceiving. Right? You've heard those. You might be tempted when we get to the middle of this chapter because you've heard those and you know those. Uh, you might be tempted to assume that you really just understand what 1 Samuel 16 says. But there's more going on here. This is a chapter about what we see and how it deceives us, but it also points us to God's anointed king to help us recognize him. Congregation, congregation, what do you see? We're going to read the text, and um, when we're finished reading it, we're going to ask and answer a couple of questions that are embedded in the text. What do you see, and what does God see? While I read, though, along the way, there's a few other issues in the text that we need to talk about that have to do with the overall development of the story or just particular details that I think are important to, to mark as we go by. So I'm going to read, but I'm also going to interrupt myself several times, which is just very rude. So let's start reading here. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Actually, it might be a good idea to start back in chapter 15 because, remember, the key word is see. Do you remember what happened so far in the book? The Israelites asked for a king. God gives them Saul through the prophet Samuel. Saul rejects the word of the Lord, so God rejects Saul as king. And, and look what the text says in verse 35 of chapter 15. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see, ah, there it is, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse, to Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now already we just have to stop here for a minute. In this passage already we have direct speech from God. It's very important. Sometimes in the book of Samuel, the prophet will say, last night the Lord said to me, and he'll report on a conversation or a revelation from God. But here in this chapter we have directly the, re- the conversation recorded as if we're there. We're hearing it for the first time, just like Samuel. What's going on in this passage here? is that Samuel is an obedient servant of God. He's not plotting against Saul. He is just hearing what God says and listening. That's important as the story unfolds. And then the text actually says too, uh, in verse 1, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. That's a really good translation of the text. But you know what's interesting is uh, there's an uh, an idiom, uh, an expression in Hebrew If you wanted to say in Hebrew, I have chosen, you would literally say, I have seen. Oh, there it is again, this word see. I have seen among his sons a king for myself, God says. Now, verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Now, does anybody here struggle with this verse? Maybe you should. Is God telling the prophet 
to be sneaky? Here's the problem. Samuel lives in Ramah. Uh, David lives in Bethlehem. In order to get from Ramah to Bethlehem, you've got to go through Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown. Samuel's going to pass through Saul's hometown. Word's going to spread. There goes Samuel the prophet. Where do you think he's going? What is he up to? What's that old man plotting? Hmm. So God tells him to take a heifer with him and, and to say to anybody who asks, I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord. Is that sneaky? Is God lying? Is he commanding the prophet to lie? Well, it's interesting. Uh, God in the Bible, doesn't he at times tell Joshua in battle to be sneaky? To set up ambushes? Actually, what's happening here is that God is in the process of judging Saul and, and God uses, at times, deceit in his judging. Listen to what Bob Chisholm says about this. God is not above using deception when he judges rebels. The Lord is a God of truth whose word is reliable, but he may very well deceive his enemies when they have, by their actions, listen to this, forfeited their right to know the truth. Now, we're going to read here. Samuel's going to get to Bethlehem. And I want to, I'm going to talk about it before we read it. When Samuel shows up in Bethlehem, the people are very anxious. They're afraid of him. Why are they afraid? Well, I can think of two reasons. One, do you remember what Samuel just did to King Agag, the Amalekite? The text says he hacked him to pieces. That might make you nervous. The other thing that's happening that's possible is there's a law in Deuteronomy 21 and Deuteronomy 21 says that if someone is found murdered out in the wilderness, you're supposed to measure the distance to the closest city. Then a Lev- Levitical priest is supposed to take a heifer to that city and sacrifice the city with all of the elders of that city to make atonement for that murder that happened out in the wilderness. So you can imagine Samuel shows up with a heifer and the people in Bethlehem may be thinking, to them, who died? What happened? Are you, is this peaceful? What's interesting is that the, the uh, um, people who live in Bethlehem, how, notice how they respond to Samuel. In the last chapter, Saul argues with him, contradicts him, pushes back against him. Here, they revere Samuel. They're afraid. Well, let's read here. Verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Samuel, Samuel, what do you see? Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not see. The Lord does not look at the things people see. People look, they see the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel, but, uh, Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Now, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to them, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the smallest, the shortest. 
Uh, my text says youngest. That, that's what it means. Uh, but just think about this. Literally shortest. Saul is the tallest. David is the shortest. You have a deliberate contrast there. Jesse answered, he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. The text literally says he had beautiful eyes, just like Rachel, Jacob's first wife, second wife. Rachel had beautiful eyes. David had beautiful eyes too. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went down to Ramah. Now, we'll stop here for a minute because I have questions about what's happening here. Um, Actually, I'm going to speculate for just a minute. Think with me for a minute about uh, whether or not this makes sense of the text or of the story here. Uh, According to the Bible here, David is Jesse's eighth son. I have read a few articles in recent years arguing about the number eight in the Bible, specifically the eighth day, and whether or not there's any sort of significance to the eighth day. Think with me. There are seven days of creation, and the week starts again on the first day, which is actually also the eighth day, isn't it? One through seven, eight. Well, uh, and, and sometimes it appears... Uh, uh, the church father Augustine argued this. John Calvin wrote about it just a little bit. He was a little bit more skeptical than Augustine. But they argued that there was some sort of significance to the eighth day. Uh, Little baby boys, Israelite baby boys, were circumcised on the eighth day. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles that is most anticipatory of the end times, of the final eschaton here, the end times, there was a special sacred assembly that was supposed to happen on the eighth day. If there are seven days of creation, then the eighth day would be new creation day. Uh, Augustine, when he wrote about to this false teacher, he he said, the Lord Jesus could have been crucified and risen from the dead on any day he chose. He is the Lord. He could, could have done any day he chose. He was crucified on Friday. He was in the tomb resting on the seventh day and he rose again on the eighth day. Now, the eighth day. Is there any significance in the fact that David is the eighth son? We have old creation. We have new creation. Eighth son. Maybe. I have one more thought about this. There must have been a fair amount of confusion, don't you think, in in Samuel's mind Right? God had been very clear to him, you're going to anoint one of Jesse's sons. So he shows up and he goes through this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. None of them? And seven is like in the Bible is a perfect number, number of completion, right? Samuel must have been thinking, something's wrong here, something's not right. Any more sons? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, there's David, he's in the field. David in the field? Why didn't he get to come to the family celebration? Why didn't he get to come to the sacrifice? Why wasn't he? He's the baby of the family, and they're always the favorite, right? Okay. Why, why wasn't he invited? Uh, this is like the Old Testament version of the Cinderella story, isn't it? There's a, a, a fancy uh, dinner going on, a sacrifice with Samuel the, the prophet is in town. It's the into town. And uh, all of the brothers go to the feast 
except for one who's got to do the chores back at home. Except he gets to come to the feast and he's the one who ends up in the palace. Isn't that Cinderella? Well, why was David home? David's at, this is puzzling to me. Um, we know David must have been interested in this. David is already showing signs of a great heart for God. And why wouldn't he be invited to the feast with God's prophet? If your son loves baseball and you're having Aaron Judge over to your house for dinner, you're going to invite him, right? You're going to have him be there. Is there something that's wrong with David? A professor of mine once suggested this, and I'm going to suggest this to you. This is not certainly something that the Bible is explicitly clear about, but I just want to suggest to you that David was born out of an illegitimate relationship. That is, he is Jesse's son, but he's not the son of one of Jesse's wives. And that's why he was out in the field when God's representative showed up. Uh, Look, I wrote down Psalm 69.8. Look what it says. It says, David wrote this, I am a foreigner to my family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Now, the text, this is his condition. This is how he feels. He doesn't belong. The text says why he doesn't belong. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of drunkards. So he gets mocked. He's alienated from his family. I just want, is it possible because he doesn't... Is there any element there that he doesn't belong? Psalm 27, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. We read it this morning, didn't we? Huh. And actually, remember that the Lord Jesus, David's greater son, was made fun of because of his parentage. The Pharisees one day said to Jesus, we know who our father is. Nobody's real sure about who your daddy is. Right? Is that possible? Maybe. Regardless, uh, David is anointed with oil and he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. And in verses 14 through 23, this story tells us about David's qualifications. He's qualified to be the anointed king. How do we know that? Well, next week when we get into chapter 17, that story of the Philistine giant, you will be amazed at it. I'm sure none of you know that story. But when we get to there in chapter 17, this is an announcement from God and Samuel David is qualified. Well, that argument actually begins in verse 14, David's qualifications. The text starts in verse 14 by talking about an evil spirit from the Lord that tormented Saul. That's strange. It's puzzling. When we see the word evil spirit, we most often think, because we're New Testament readers, we think of um, demons. I'm not sure that the word evil is that specific, It means more a troublesome, antagonizing spirit. What's what's confusing maybe about this is it says it's from the Lord. Well, God is in the process of disciplining Saul. Saul is going to begin to show signs of paranoia. Perhaps some people have tried to diagnose him with bipolar disorder. He's going to show great mental confusion and mental anguish. And this is part of God. God is disciplining him. Uh, If we wanted to, we could spend some time talking about the chain of causality and this evil that comes to Saul. But but the text just very simply says, God is in the process of, he has rejected Saul as king, and here 
Saul's life is going to unravel, and we'll see that in the chapters to come. Remember God's sovereignty, Isaiah 45. Look what it says. I am the Lord and there is no other apart from me. There is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light, yes, and create the darkness. Oh. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. He's creating disaster in Saul's life. Let's read the text here. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. I wonder if, because of David's reputation, this scene takes place quite a bit after the anointing. I'm not sure. Um, Well, verse 19. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. Still, he's still with the sheep, poor guy. So Jesse took a donkey, loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his servant's service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Congregation, congregation, what do you see? There are two key questions at the center of this chapter, and here's the first one, very simply, what do you see? And verse 7 tells us what we human beings see, and it's one of our deepest problems. We look at outward appearances. That's what the text says. People look, in verse 7, at the outward appearance. And it's the case of Eliab, and it's the case of Saul. Looking at the outward appearance alone can lead you astray. Do you need this warning? Don't you already know this, right? Isn't this the theme of two-thirds of every television show for children in the world, right? Some unattractive little child moves into the neighborhood or comes to school, and the bullies pick on him, and then there's one brave soul who finally sits with this kid at lunch, and they become best friends, and then that unattractive little child saves the world, and everybody knows you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, right? Isn't that the theme of every child's show, at least two-thirds of them? Don't, don't you already know this? Do you remember Susan Boyle? Susan Boyle is a Scottish singer. She made an appearance on a television show called Britain's Got Talent in 2009. And at the time, she walked down the stage and she was a rather frumpy-looking middle-aged woman. And people laughed at her because she was a middle-aged, frumpy-looking woman until she sang and then people cried tears of joy and, and clapped and clapped and clapped. The, the YouTube video that they made of this, uh, her appearance in the show has been watched by millions and millions of people. Don't judge by, his, by appearances. We know that, right? We know that. And yet we succumb to this all the time. Uh, I could give you dozens of examples. I'll just share a couple of them. 
in his book Blink by um, Malcolm Gladwell. He writes about how major concert orchestras 30 years ago started auditioning musicians behind screens. It used to be that there would be a table somewhere in the uh, auditorium of uh, maybe the conductor and some people from the orchestra, and you'd come out on stage and play, and uh, uh, they would evaluate whether you could make the orchestra. Well, they decided 30 years ago to install a screen, so they put a screen between the musician and the uh, uh, judges, and all they could hear, now they couldn't see you, all they could do was listen to you play. Since that time, the number of women in major U.S. orchestras has increased fivefold. Malcolm Gladwell tells us, and, and you know, orchestra leaders are not known for their great misogyny, right? They're not arguing out for uh, hating women. They think of themselves very progressive, enlightened people. Well, Malcolm Gladwell gives uh, the story of Julie Landsman. Julie Landsman plays the French horn. She sat behind the screen. Uh, there, when she auditioned, there were no female brass players in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra because everybody knows that women cannot play brass instruments as well as men, right? Everybody knows that. So Julie Landsman sat down and played her French horn and it was the most astounding thing they'd ever heard. She walked out from behind the screen and they were just shocked. Julie Landsman subbed for the Met, but until she played behind the screen, no one thought she was good enough to be in the orchestra. Well, that's a little bit more highbrow. Here's something a little bit more lowbrow about this. Um, Diana Speckler started a website several years ago called Body Confessions. Thousands of people have gone on this website, Body Confessions. Most of them have been women, and they have written anonymously about how they feel about how they look. Uh, Here are some of the most popular posts. I hate everything about my body and often feel guilty because I should be thankful I even have a healthy body. I have no missing limbs, no diseases, no actual faults. I'm tired and exhausted of hating my blessed body. I constantly compare myself to other women. I eat when I'm depressed and then I get more depressed. Sometimes when I see a woman fatter than me, I'm glad she's making me look better. I want to lock myself up until I'm thin again. I constantly compare myself to other women. Weight, skin, hair, clothes. More often than not, I find myself lacking in most areas. I continually base my worth on what other people look like. I don't know how to feel comfortable in my own skin. I am incredibly jealous of all those people who eat whatever they want and never gain a pound. I just want to look in the mirror and feel happy. Congregation, congregation, What do you see? We should know the Bible is teaching this here, but we still get sucked into this. I think that's why this boggles my mind. Verse 12, God just says, I look at the heart, I don't look at the outward appearance. And then verse 12 says, David showed up and boy, was he a good looking guy. What is going on? I don't understand that. I think the text that's telling us this here to remind us of how how often we succumb to this. Scripture reminds us repeatedly. Proverbs 31.30 Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. James 2 tells us if somebody walks into church 
If two people walk into church and one person has really fine clothes on and looks good and smells good, uh, don't treat them differently than the person who walks in the church with shabby clothes on who and smell as good. Be careful about that. Be careful. James 2 warns us. Or 1 Timothy 4, 7. Look what it says. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now think carefully with me about this. The passage says physical training has some value. There is value in it. The Song of Songs, when they talk about each other, the husband and wife in that passage, they praise one another's uh, beauty and handsomeness. But Paul says the value of physical training is limited. Do you look at people that way because you know how limited physical training is? Have you ever noticed, uh, I don't know if you, uh, how much time you've spent in gyms. I have been there enough to at least to know this. <laughs> um, there are mirrors all over the place in gyms. Now, I know technically why those mirrors are there. They're, the mirrors are there because your form when you're lifting weights is very important. We are inclined to cheat when we're lifting weights. Uh, uh, and your form, you want to look in the mirror so that you can tell, is my form okay? Is my back straight? Or am I doing this right? That's what the mirrors ostensibly are there for. I have seen what they're really there for, though. They're there for the guy who every three minutes walks from the uh, barbells where he has been curling uh, weights as he walks to the drinking fountain on the other side. They're there for, them, for that man to stop and admire his gains as he walks by. That's what they're there for, right? Physical training is of some value, limited value. We know what verse 7 teaches. We know it's the theme of our songs. It's the theme of some of our best stories. But we still fall for it. We have this temptation to dismiss people who are ugly or old or wrinkled or poor or black or white or foreign or too young or bald or toothless or fat or skinny or out of fashion or too fashionable. If you're handsome and you're beautiful, you must be telling me the truth and you must have everything in your life together. If you're uh, less so, probably something's wrong with you. Remember this in, in regard to what the Bible tells us about the Lord Jesus. This is where this presses us most importantly. Isaiah 53.2 says about Jesus, he was not much to look at. It's a loose paraphrase. Look at the text. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He did not get his father David's good looks. He was blah. He was unremarkable. What do you see? Will you recognize the king when he comes? Fanny Crosby wrote, I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight. I love that phrase. I shall see the king in his beauty. Someday the Lord Jesus is going to return. He'll be full of glory. Every eye will see him, and he will be magnificent. But the first time he came, his appearance was unremarkable. And his main work, his death on the cross, was considered foolish and unworthy of God's Son. Isn't this strange? We who live in a world where we're dominated by how people look on the outside, 
the message that we have as followers of Jesus is that everybody is ugly inside. That we are eternally, internally, damnably ugly. No matter how good your face looks, inside of you is a heart that is deceitful and desperately wicked. It's full of envy and greed and lust and hate and selfishness. It's not a very popular message when, when the, the leading magazines publish the 50 most beautiful people, right? You're ugly on the inside. It's not a popular message. People deflect, well, yeah, but I'm not as bad as that guy. I don't know if they did, probably, but you know, if the seven dwarves in Snow White's story, do you ever suppose they stood around and argued about who was the tallest? doesn't matter, you're all dwarves, right? I'm not as bad as that person. You're still ugly, right? It's the message that we tell. You are damnably ugly, separated from God, alienated from Him. He is beautiful in His generosity and in His mercy and in His justice and in His wisdom, and we're not. Not a popular message. And then, then we say the solution to this ugliness is something else that's ugly. Jesus' death on the cross. Now, our culture has been so influenced that, that we think in terms, great, our great stories all have sacrifice in them. The greatest stories that we tell and we recount all have moments of sacrifice. We've been influenced by Jesus to think that way. But before Jesus came, that's not the way people thought about sacrifice. So that Paul wrote, that Jesus' death on the cross was foolish and a stumbling block, unworthy of someone who would be beautiful like God's son should be. So uh, we have an ugly message and an ugly solution. They may have thought about the cross. Did you ever read in the newspaper accounts of, of uh, some death row inmate being executed in an electric chair? You don't read that story and think, wow, that's just beautiful. Don't read that. Don't think that. That's the way the cross would have appeared to those who are first hearing this story. One of the ways that you know you're a Christian is actually that you see the beauty in this ugly story. That Jesus' death on the cross for us was substitutionary. It was for us, paying the penalty of sins that we owed. He died and rose again so that all who believe in him might have life and might find forgiveness in him. Congregation, congregation, what do you see? I wonder what your friendships within the church look like and if, what they indicate about what you see. I wonder how, when you greet visitors, what, what that indicates and who you greet and how you greet them, what that indicates about what you see. I wonder if the people you think are candidates for friendship in your life, what you see, uh, how you see, how it affects that. A psychologist would tell you, you just can't help it. You just can't help it. We all do this. We're all attracted to attractive people. That's the way it is. But are we really so limited, we who are followers of Jesus? Are we so limited? Now, in contrast to that, we have a second question to ask and answer. We must spend less time on this, clearly. Um, What does God see is the second question. Verse 7 tells us, God looks at the heart. We look at outward appearance, God looks at the heart. 
Now, we should stop for a minute and think about the word heart and what it means in the Bible. The Bible uses the word heart to describe the center of who you are. Your heart is where you think and feel and will. It's the place where your desires are born. It's with your heart that you treasure what you treasure. This description in the Bible that is very consistent about our heart being the center of who we are is is very different than a lot of psychological, psychiatric uh, understandings of the heart, of the human human soul, really. Sigmund Freud, no one talks like this anymore, but he he didn't talk about a heart, he talked about the id and the ego and the superego, right? The Bible talks about the heart. And I think the Bible's teaching about the heart is sufficient to help us work through some of the most difficult issues that human beings face. Now what's confusing about this is that the word heart, we use the word heart to talk about your feelings, your emotions. This is the Greeks. This is what the Greeks did. You think with your mind, you feel with your heart, and your, heart is, your feelings are bad. Think with your mind, you feel with your heart, you should ignore those, that's what the Greeks said. And you will, you act with your will. The Bible does not describe human beings that way. We have a heart where we think, feel, and will. And the Bible says if, if you want to divide those up, you know why, why they're divided? is because of the shattering effects of sin. When human beings were originally created, our thoughts and our emotions and our wills were all perfectly aligned. You wanted to do what you knew was best for you and it brought you great joy when you did it. That's not the way we experience life today, though, is it? I get discouraged by this. I often do not want to do what I know is best. And even if I will myself to do it, I just don't feel like it. Last weekend, we spent a lot of time cleaning our house. My in-laws were in town this past week. I have great in-laws. We were happy to have them. We had a good time. But I still didn't feel like cleaning the house. Right? Does anybody else have that problem? That, that this is the shattering effect of sin. Someday when Christ returns, you will want to do what you know is best for you and you will love it. Until that time, I have a broken heart. David knew this, actually. Psalm 141, he prayed, Do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil so that I take part in evil deeds. Or Psalm 86:11, Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Do you ever pray about your heart? You should pray about your heart. David prayed about his heart. The Lord sees David's heart and it's in line with God himself. The Bible does not tell us here in this passage how this came to be. David was not born perfect. and He didn't live perfectly either. He was born with a divided heart too. He's the product of God's grace working in his life and that work has brought his heart into conformity with God's own heart. And you can see that in the second half of chapter 16. God is using David to soothe Saul. Who is more powerful, God the warrior poet's songs or this evil spirit? Well, God, the, uh, David the warrior poet's songs. David is God's anointed king. How do we know that? Well, he's going to beat the giant and he uses his music to beat the evil spirit. Actually, the Gospels will do this about Jesus too when Jesus shows up. How do we know this is God's anointed king? Well, you should see the miracles he does and you should hear how he teaches. He's God's anointed king. (laughs) Yeah. The call of this passage is to begin thinking about how we see. 
We should start seeing like the Lord Jesus sees. We won't do it perfectly. We won't do it completely. But we should start. How do you see the heart? You see the heart by what you say. Jesus says, uh, your words come out of your heart. You know somebody's heart by their words. Paul told Timothy and Titus to look at the fruit in a man's life before they consider making him an elder. You see the heart by what they do. Look at the heart evident in the life of a woman who is serving in the church before you enlist her officially as a ministry of widow, as, uh, widows. You know how you can, start, you can tell you are starting to think more about the heart that you're starting to see the way God sees? You can tell by how you start thinking about your heart and the attentiveness you give to your heart. You know you really understand this chapter when you start thinking more about your heart and less about your wrinkles or your roles. Your patience more than you think about your hairline. The shape of your mercy and not just the shape of your nose. The strength of your convictions and not just the strength of your biceps. Your wisdom intake and not just your caloric intake. What do you think about more? George MacDonald was a novelist. He was a, a favorite of C.S. Lewis. And George MacDonald, I'll finish this here, uh, wrote a book called The Curate's Awakening. It tells the story of a man by the name of Thomas Wingfold. Thomas Wingfold was a handsome young man who uh, started uh, ministry as a church at a church in a very small uh, rural English town. And Thomas Wingfold was a fraud. He, he looked good, but he didn't really have any sort of relationship with God. And his shallow spirituality showed up in the fact that he started plagiarizing his sermons. It's a lot easier to read a good sermon and preach it as your own than it is to study and find one. Well, somebody in this congregation found out about it and wrote him a letter. Reverend Wingfold, I know where you get these sermons. This was potentially damaged. It was just going to ruin his career. He was going to be outed. It was going to be embarrassing. So Thomas Wingfold made an appointment to go see this man who had uh, discovered his plagiarized sermons. And that's when he met a man by the name of Joseph Polwarth. Joseph Polwarth was a tragically deformed hunchback, a hideously ugly man. But Polwarth also studied the scriptures, read the Bible, knew Jesus personally. Well, Wingfold and Polworth started secretly to meet with one another, and Polworth shared his life and his heart with Wingfold. And eventually, Wingfold himself begins to come, move, not just from a faith in the idea of God, but faith in the real living God. And the church, the town, was amazed at the change that took place in their minister. They, there goes a godly man. Look at him. That's what they'd think when they'd see Wingfold walking down the street. And then sometime they'd see Polworth and they'd say, ah, oh, that poor ugly guy. Too bad he really can't make any contribution to society. Followers of Jesus don't make that mistake. If you've trusted in Christ, you have already turned to someone without apparent physical beauty. You already know this. You already know that, that beautiful things are sometimes found in less attractive places. You've already turned to someone who suffered and died on the cross for the sake of love. You already know how to look beyond someone's appearance. And the story, this story calls us to take those next few steps. 
Congregation, congregation, what do you see? Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Father, we come before you this morning and this text sets before us a seemingly insurmountable task. This text tells us to not trust in every beautiful thing that we can see or every, every handsome person that we can see. It calls us and tells us to look deeper. Lord, I am thankful to you that you do heart work. And, and I pray, Father, that you, as a, that you would help us as a, as a congregation to think about our own hearts and the work that you have done. You are the conquerors of them through the Lord Jesus. Help us to see what you see. Help us not to be discouraged foolish about what we see. Help us to value what you see. Do that work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.